Hey everyone, I want to thank you for joining me for this Mo News conversation beyond the daily podcast. I try to regularly bring on newsmakers and experts to really break down headlines in the news and issues you're asking questions about. Today's conversation takes us inside those final couple weeks of the withdrawal from Afghanistan last August in a way you have never seen before. Jamie Roberts and his team have put together an incredible documentary with never-before-seen footage from Marines who were at the Kabul airport, the Afghans, some who made it out and some who didn't, as well as the Taliban soldiers that were on site those last couple weeks. The Escape from Kabul is now streaming on HBO Max and features an immersive day-by-day look at the last 18 days of the war, the chaos, the tragedy, really what was happening on the ground away from all the politics, what the U.S. Marines there who were sent last second and saw a constantly changing mission were facing, Afghans explaining the lengths they had to go to get out, to get through those walls of the airport. The complete insanity on the runways, those first couple days, you remember the pictures of people chasing the planes. Uh, We have new details on how the airport actually got cleared uh, by the Afghan military that is revealed first in this documentary. Jamie and team also got perspective in interviews with Taliban soldiers, commanders, including the commander of the suicide bomber unit. They had some wild revelations, including how they actually hide explosive devices up their rear ends. I have covered the war and the withdrawal extensively at Mo News, and I know you're going to learn a lot from this conversation as I did. We're continuing to unwind even more than a year later what happened, what went wrong, and the human toll of the withdrawal. Before we start, a reminder to subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on at this moment so you never miss a conversation. Also, please leave us a review if you can. It helps us continue to grow the show uh, and continue to move up the ranks at Apple, Spotify, and again, whatever app you're listening to us on. With that, here's my conversation with Jamie Roberts about his new documentary. Jamie Roberts, it is great to be chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me on. So as someone who covered these events last summer, uh, my wife and I were captivated watching your documentary. The uh, heartbreaking images, videos from both inside and outside the airport, the desperation. It's only been just over a year since those scenes played out in Kabul. You already have a new film out on it, a relative sprint by documentary terms. I want to know, take me through your process here, Jamie. What led you to this topic and to move so quickly? Um, Yeah, so... Le- leading to me to the topic, I've I've made a film about uh, Afghan child uh, unaccompanied child minors who were coming up through the migration route um, through Europe in the past, and spe- specifically with Afghans. And I've had an interest in the Afghan conflict. Um, when I was cutting my previous film, um, Four Hours at the Capital, this was happening on the on the TV. We were watching the images live coming through, and we I think in the office we immediately knew this is this is a big story. This is the Taliban have taken over. This is the end of um, the end of the, the Afghan government's control. And there's going to be, you know, quite quickly, you could see that the uh, the attention was going to move on and shift um, possibly somewhere else. And it did to Ukraine. So we were pretty much on the phone in communication with HBO immediately and, and then starting the process as quickly as possible. And the first thing to do really was to try and get out to Kabul, um, which we did in January. It took some time to get out there because there wasn't there's barely any flights. It's very difficult. If you're if you're not just a citizen, it was difficult to get out there. You have to go do things in the right way um, through HBO and BBC standards. So it took a while to get out there, really to get on the ground and get the story going. Um, HBO did want something kind of within a year, year and a bit. Um, I think there was a hunger to understand what had happened, and there hadn't really, there'd been some great reporting at the time, 
but it was one of those events that was it was almost so chaotic there were so many images that they flew by and then the world's attention moved to russia to all the other things that are happening um and really i think we we wanted to have a there was a pace to what we were doing and we wanted to try and get some momentum and i think there's still a kind of hunger to understand the story in the in the kind of medium term i suppose um we try and give ourselves as much chance as possible we get out there quickly but um you're trying to work quite fast but um you know was, i suppose every day we were every day meeting and filming out in Kabul for two months and then we're in the states for a month um with the marines and others whilst people were working back in london so it's almost trying to make your work as efficient as possible try and cover as much ground as possible and yeah we're not doing it in a four-year period it's more for people that are still interested in the story in the in the kind of medium term yeah i was interested in that and you noted that you were working on your last film four hours of the capital about the events of january 6th that came out uh just about nine months after those events took place uh you've put out this film now a year after the events in kabul talk to me about your process i interested i'm interested in this because I live in a world of journalism where we document things as they happen. Uh, you certainly have documentarians and authors who might take years, uh, decades potentially, to tell stories, research stories. You live somewhere in the middle here, this kind of this quick turn documentary. Um, tell me about what, what got you interested in telling these stories and, and what you view as kind of the advantage of uh, telling stories in this way um, relatively uh, recently after they take place. I suppose one thing is... Um you know, so, so some of the people that wouldn't speak initially or you can't find initially, if you, if you go back a little bit later, you can locate those people. You can find those people and maybe, maybe have a bit more clarity and focus about what you're doing because you're coming slightly after the fact. Um, you know, there's some films like Hoop Dreams and things like that that I love that took like six years. They're fantastic. But at the moment, the world's moving at a fairly rapid pace. And as I say, the, the 24 hours news cycle is it moves so fast um, that it feels like there are kind of this, there's stories to be told and you don't necessarily need to take five, six years over them. There are, there's places to do that, but there's also, I think there's a, there's an, there's a, Afghanistan is going to move to its next chapter, you know, soon in a way, in a way it's already moving on. And that kind of final chapter of the 20 year war felt like something that people would want to understand, would want to um, contemplate and, and maybe know some more about because there was the, the images we'd all seen and um, so from some of the great journalism that was done originally, but we just wanted to dig a bit deeper. And I'm sure there, there, is, a, there is a bigger series. There's much more to be done about Afghanistan, but about that moment, we, we wanted to kind of work hard and fast to try and try and get something that we felt was insightful, but people could still, felt still spoke maybe to what people are thinking about now. So the film itself, you tell the story of the last 18 days at Kabul airport through the eyes of, of the U.S. Marines who were there, uh, the Afghans uh, who were fleeing, and the Taliban um, and the, the airport itself inside, outside the three gates. At the same time, the war in Afghanistan is this immense thing, right? At least the most recent war, 20 years, trillions of dollars. The war takes place over four American presidents, dozens of countries had soldiers there, several hundred thousand served, tens of thousands are dead. Um, why the decision to focus um, small there, focus on the airport in those 18 days? I think um, with a story, I mean, for me anyway, the one of the a really important thing is to kind of have your focus narrow and deep. You know, if we watch, for example, if you watch a movie, you might watch it about a lead actor and a couple of other characters and really everybody else is, is background. And, 
this is a story. We're trying to engage people in story and the drama of what happened. And to do that, it's through these human stories. So really, we don't want to do a huge Wikipedia and try and tell you every answer to every question. That's not what we're doing. We're telling you a specific story, which is this is what happened when the Taliban came into the city. The Marines who were there had to then react and an Afghan, the citizens fled. Um, and, and this is what our film's about. So it's trying to find a way in. I suppose in a way, uh, at a crass level, if you say Saving Private Ryan, it's not about the whole Second World War. It's about this company of, of soldiers and the human stories within. And I suppose that's the, the angle we're taking on this. We're, you know, the, the broad has been told by, I think, the, the initial news. And what we're trying to do is get under the skin and make you understand maybe what it felt like to be there right at the center of the story. So right, right on the front line with the Marines and the Talibs that was facing them. And then the Afghan civilians who were literally in the drainage canal to try and make it immediate. And so to understand how it felt to be there, because when that initial reporting was come out, it did feel very diff distant. It felt very chaotic, but you couldn't really understand from a viewer's point of view, what did Kabul feel like? Why were people doing what they were doing? What were the motivations? What were the feelings? It was a slightly dehumanizing event because there was half a million people down at the airport, you know, 124,000 managed to get out. There were countless more that didn't. 6,000 US um, military were there, 1,000 British. So you can't tell every single moment of every single story. So really the idea is to kind of get that focus down to a, a laser sharp point, try and find people that are going to be able to bring you into the story to kind of hopefully allow a viewer a connection and a way into the story that feels like they can understand it and maybe have a bit of a, a kind of a visceral um, response to what was happening. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear uh, some of those characters, hear their stories. Um, I, I want to focus on a, a few of the areas where you find your characters. First, uh, the Pentagon, the Marines that you spoke to. Um, what was the process like um, get, going through the U.S. government and uh, being able to speak to some of those Marines about uh, what they witnessed there standing on the wall uh, over the tens of thousands of Afghans desperately trying to get in there, lifting their babies, saying, just take take the baby. Um, what, what was the process like um, working with the U.S. government and uh, speaking to these Marines? Um, I mean, the, the Marines were fantastic. Um, it did take a long time to get them to the table. Um, initially, we were we were rebuffed. We reached out to the, the U.S. Army, the Air Force, the Marines. Um, we had some access here with the Ministry of Defense in the U.K., um, but it, we were very interested in the Marines because they were the ones that they were one of the forward, forward operating forces. They were there in small numbers and they were there on the gates. You know, they lost, um, I think, 12 of the 13 who were killed on the Abbey Gate were Marines. So um, we knew we wanted them on board. And initially we were told from people we know, but also the Marines themselves that, you know, they're not going to be involved. Over time, I think that we spoke to people who'd left the Marines and then we started speaking more and more with an intermediary that we found and we we sensed that there was a groundswell that people in the Marine Corps who were there were traumatized, maybe upset by what happened. But a lot of it was they, they hadn't felt like they hadn't been heard. This story hadn't been told. They, they, hadn't been, they hadn't been asked or allowed to speak about what happened. And I think, um, you know, we were told there was uh, some, um, the administration at the White House, there was a block there. For whatever reason, they decided to go ahead. I don't know if the, 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 the administration then said yes or what happened, but 
over a series of months. Yeah, I, I find that decision fascinating because they're going to be facing uh, questions likely. Uh, should should things unfold like we think they might unfold with the midterm elections here in the U.S. and Republicans take um, at least uh, one of the houses, Afghanistan is going to be investigated, including this departure. And it's not something, um, shall we say, was the best planned or executed uh, as evidenced by, you know, how you guys lay out things in your film as well. Yeah, but I think that's, uh, I've noticed that there's, there's uh, you know, the, the film about the Capitol and this, they're obviously highly politicized events, but you're trying to kind of go beneath that onto the onto the ground. But I mean, there needs to be an inquiry about what's happened. There needs to be a, re- a review of, of of the evacuation from either side of the house because mm-hmm. it, it was, you know, Marine, Marines died, 170 Afghans died in a bomb, way more died, you know, more died out in the out in the field. It's, there'd be good reason to try and understand why this went so badly wrong. And I know a lot of people instantly say, well, it's Biden's fault. But it was in Afghanistan in Kabul, you ask people and they say, well, it's Trump's fault. He was the guy that invited the Taliban to the table and signed a deal without inviting the Afghan government. It was Biden that then took on the baton and decided to right. go ahead with that policy. So, I mean, as you've said, there's four presidents that have presided over this, and I think you kind of have to go back a little bit to see it through the the latest midterms or the president right now is you're kind of missing some of the context that you mentioned. Um, but yeah, there was, I don't know how that decision changed, but I think the Mar- Marines were brave in doing what they did. I think there is a psychology in the Marines that, um, you know, that they step into chaos and they have to deal with situations um, that are very difficult and they're proud of what they do. And I think they feel like they should speak. And I'm glad they did because they're very articulate and they do tell the story in a way that you can't if you're an analyst or an observer. You know, they're young men who are put there in a very difficult situation. Oh, a, a thousand percent. Listening to the young men and women uh, who served in the Marines, given no notice, they had there. The mission evolves sort of as they get there. There's no process to process these tens of thousands of human beings. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you hear it through, through their lens. Uh, it was also incredible to see the footage that you obtained of the Marines who were there, um, as they're anticipating a potential ISIS attack. Yeah. I think, um, one of the Marines I spoke, a Marine I spoke to recently actually said that, you know, our stories aren't told or shown to people outside of the military anymore. There used to be documentaries where people were allowed to embed, or, you know, journalists like yourself would be out there in a the field in, in a vehicle or with, with people. But that's less and less. It's, it's, I think since about 2012 in Afghanistan, that's not really been allowed. You know, it was stopped. So um, and that's a shame because we want to understand what our militaries do. We, we, we pay for them and they go and fight for the countries that we live in. Um, and I think that it's important that their stories are shown. At the same time, uh, you have a number of voices from the Taliban. Um, who uh, tell their stories um, of the war um, there, uh, both what they did in the lead up to the withdrawal, uh, their shock that they were able to take Kabul so easily, um, what transpired from their perspective uh, at those final two weeks at the airport. I understand you were able, you, you had to negotiate with them, you obtained a bunch of film from them from outside the airport. Um, because there's a lot of film here that I don't think any of us have seen, you know, beyond some of the clips we'd seen on social media. Um, talk to me, Jamie, about that process of negotiating with the Taliban, um, why they had so much film from outside the airport, uh, and what their incentive and goals were in speaking to you for this film. Yeah, so um, so one of the, I suppose one of the um, key the key qualities about getting there quickly was the fact that we 
we were in a window of time where the Taliban, no, you know, the rules hadn't been set in Afghanistan. Now I think less and less they're allowing fighters to talk and and um, and work with the, the Western press. You know, the, the rules are always changing. But when we got on the ground, we didn't really know. We wanted to get the Taliban on the table to interview because we thought, well, there, you know, there was three major forces at this event. One is the 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 NATO and US led military, there's the Taliban, and then there's the people that were trying to get out. And we wanted to understand the story. We felt like we needed to understand, you know, what their motivations were, what their experience was. Um, and we hadn't really hear, heard them speak apart from some of their spokesmen in Qatar and some of the kind of more lofty people, not the people who are down on, on the ground. Um, so I suppose when I got there, we were just, we were trying to ascertain, would this be possible? Um, I spent a lot of time drinking tea, talking with Taliban. And also, you know, I explained to them that this was a historic moment for all of us. You know, we've been invested in this war, um, US, Britain, and obviously they fought in this war. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not, they're savvy when it comes to the media. They watch TV, they have, you know, social media, phones, they understand that um, stories are important. It's one of the things that they've managed to succeed in in this war is t telling a narrative to the people that support them and getting a groundswell behind that. So they can understand if, if they could understand when I said, look, we're, we're going to be filming with the Americans. We'll be filming with British. We'll, we'll be filming with um, evacuees. We want to understand, you know, why, how this was for you, how, how you did this and how it happened. And I think they, they understood that and they could see that I mean, I was just there with a colleague, you know, we're not an intimidating force. We came and we, we looked them in the eye and we spent time. So they're not, I think they could see that we were genuine in, in what we were trying to do. Um, and yeah, and then I was also trying to see if any of them had filmed footage because I knew that some of them would have, and I'd seen bits and pieces and, um, there were some that I zeroed in on and just by going through different networks met and then met again and again and finding out they had material on their phones, on their hard drives and trying to get that off them. Um, and in the end, had, they, had, they did. were they filming just for their, just like the rest of, you know, like, you know, everyone else just for their own personal reasons or were they formally uh, was there like a formal attempt by the Taliban to also be filming the um, the final withdrawal for their own purposes? So there was, I think a lot a lot of the fighters would be filming just for their personal, you know, this was the moment they'd been waiting for. This was the big moment. Um, and there was, there's a, there's a long sequence at the end where they kind of, they're firing into the air and they go into the airport. Um, and that guy, he's in the, the, the guy who filmed that, he's interviewed, he was a member of the Taliban special forces, but he also, he did like filming and he filmed bits and pieces for their unit. So he would film. Yeah, uh, I, I, I noted the audio you had up there where he says, guys, this is being filmed. Look like you know what you're doing or, or something exactly. to that effect. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, he wasn't professional. He was very upfront about that, but he was like, but I'm the guy in our unit who films it. And, you know, I was like, I was there, I filmed it. And I think they put some of it out a little bit on their social media, but he had all the, the uncut rushes of it, which tells you the story as it unfolds. They're literally waiting for the Americans to leave and then they go through and into the airport and and then they find that the airport has been destroyed to their kind of annoyance. And um, I think they were just hoping that everything would be there and they could take the helicopters and the tanks and everything, but it had all been pretty much all been smashed up by the army and the Marines. Um, so it, you know, it, take, it took a lot of convincing. We got told no a lot of times, but with persistence, um, we managed to to get the Taliban and we filmed with a lot more than we're in the film. We were really trying to, I suppose, um, condense it, concentrate it down to the people who were right in the positions where that we wanted. And also were telling the stories that we felt intersected with the Marines and the evacuees that we were looking for. 
Did you have any um, moral or ethical concerns in dealing with them? Did Were they um, asking for payment for licensing of this footage? Or did you have to promise not to ask them certain things? Talk to me about sort of where you as a, as a documentary producer and director, um, uh, how you approached all of that. Yeah, so um, there, there is more or less concerns um, interviewing, filming the Taliban. Um, but I've, I've got quite, I've worked on quite a few films in similar areas. So I made a film called The Jihadis Next Door about uh, London jihadis who were joining ISIS, who were then later involved in the London Bridge attack. And I embedded with them for two years. And they, some went to Syria, some stayed here. And, you know, they have to stay on, you have to be impartial, you have to be factual. And you have to stay right on the line. Um, and so, and I also did the same with a far right group in the UK, a bunch of uh, kind of nationalist hooligans. And again, you want to be there to bear witness. You want to question, you have to challenge. You have to try and keep safe at the same time. So it is a dance that you do. Um, so I suppose I've, I've been, uh, I'm not, it's not dissimilar to those situations. Um, with the Taliban, I did challenge them. I did ask them about, you know, their, why were they asking people to, they're, they're surprised people are leaving, but can't they see that they're, you know, they're, they're leaving because of them, uh, their views on women. We, we had some kind of punch and Judy shows and we worked through that, but really I'm just, I'm looking for their honest account of, of what happened. Um, and I'm not interested in the glorification if they want to do that, you know, we cut that out or we move on and we're not giving them a, we're not trying to give them a platform. Um, we're trying mm -hmm. to, but we do think that they're, they are participants. So that experience is important to this story. Um, so there is, there is a line that you dance on and we didn't pay for interviews. We didn't pay for footage. You have to do a lot of convincing. And to be honest, the Taliban aren't paid themselves. And I think they are becoming more and more corrupt and people will ask you for money, but it happens a lot less than it does in the UK or America because everybody expects paying there and we can't pay for, mm. um, we can't pay for interviews you know we it's i know that some documentaries do but when you're when you're working in current affairs um you can't be explicitly paying for for interviews because it's it discredits the the interview one remarkable thing and i, I remember covering this last year but just is reinforced by your documentary is just the utter chaos jamie what appears to be a complete lack of planning and 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 by august of 2021 we're in the last month of the war there's an August 31st deadline. The Marines that um, you depict and that you speak to arrive there on August 13th, 18 days to go. Um, you know, shocked by the fact that the Taliban will take Kabul within, you know, a couple days there, within hours, frankly. Um, and just the complete lack of a plan. Based on your research here in this documentary, was there a plan if the Afghan government had held for 18 more days? Or... Because it just seems to me that they get there and there's not even a plan to adapt. There's just no plan. Were, were you shocked by that? What, what did you learn about all of that? Well, I think the plan that they'd had coming in, they had planned, but it was planned for, a, like they say, an or, quite an orderly evacuation. I think that um, we went through the DOD reports. And they talk about up to 45,000. 45, um, and obviously that was 124,000 in the end, and that could have continued on. <laughs> I think I they think plan to take out. Sorry, sorry, just to reiterate, they plan to take out forty-five thousand uh, Afghans. Uh, we, we were trying and, to dig for a number because we asked every single Marine, we asked every everybody. You know, the the U.S. ambassador. We spoke to many more people that are in the film. Um, no one could give us a number, and so I don't know. This 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 report was done after the fact, so 
Whether that number was kind of cooked up a little bit or not, I'm not sure. But it said 45,000, which when you're looking at the situation the Marines were going into and what they were expecting, sounds very high to me because they say themselves they were thinking it was going to be an orderly evacuation. It's the SIVs, the people with special immigrant visas. Um, it's the, um, the, the people who work in the Afghan government, perhaps. And it's going to go like that. What, what does it or the, the dignitaries that need to get out and the Americans? Um, uh, and then obviously on the 15th, everything changes. The Taliban come into town. They're completely not expect, expecting it. And that's when, yeah, I think the plans all go out the window because they didn't expect um, the government to, to collapse that quickly. And I don't think they had a contingency for that at all. Um, you know, they, they were they were brought there. They had quite simple instructions, it seemed. They had been planning for months leading up to that, but it wasn't planning for, for what played out. I think that the speed of the Taliban coming into the city and the speed at which the government, the hollowed out government, which had been entrusted to kind of hold, was so fast that it just took everybody by surprise. And there was, I think there is a lot of um, soul searching that needs to go on about what had happened prior to that in terms of how the government, you know, the Afghan government being expected, to, the Afghan National Army being expected to hold when it was known they were corrupt when it was known that the um, the spirit had maybe gone out of the fight when they'd seen the Taliban sign a deal with the US, um, mm-hmm. with Khalil Zad on behalf of Trump. You know, the Afghan army will tell you that. They saw that and they saw America leave Bagram and they were like, we're, we're, we're toast. You know, this, this ain't going to happen. And that was, that was weeks, months before, years before this actually happened. So when you kind of roll the clock back, it starts to look like a fait accompli. Yeah, you know what was so interesting is you you have the Taliban reps that you speak to who are shocked by the fear and desperation of the people. You have the Marines who you speak to who are shocked by the fear and desperation of these people uh, to get out. And then when you look at it with the perspective that you bring to it, you're like, well, I mean, no shock. These people are fear, you know, fearful and desperate to get out of this country. But it appeared that the people who were, you know, literally on, you know, yards, meters away from each other, the Taliban soldiers and the American soldiers watching this all unfold, all seem to still be a bit surprised by why they were watching um, take place outside the airport in those last two weeks. Yeah, I suppose they're kind of seeing it right from the center of the bubble and it's all just happening straight at them, you know, especially with the Marines. It's, it's like... Um, Richard Ella, the, um, he, the, the kind of the lead marine, as you, if you like, he, he, they literally see a crowd just rushing towards them, and it's thousands and thousands of people, and that's kind of the start, the trigger point for them, and it just continues on like that. I think maybe if you're, um, if you're a, a remove or you're seeing this on the news or you're kind of an observer, and uh, a lot of the talibs and the marines involved, they they weren't really informed on this. They're often, you know, the marines were off on their um on their boats or doing whatever else they were doing they're brought to this not with the kind of often the background that maybe we have a, a lot of a lot of them do take an interest in afghanistan a lot of them serve there but they're also doing yeah. other things and they respond and then they have to they have to do this and i, I think that um yeah with the, the taliban uh i think both both sides i don't think it can probably prepare you anything can prepare you to see that kind of suffering playing out in front of you when i think the marines were expecting um, an evacuation that was going to go how they planned. And I think the Taliban were expecting a lot of people to join them and celebrate with them. That's what they thought. They thought that the people of Kabul were going to go, woo, we beat America. And they're like, <laughs> they didn't seem to to realize or think that a lot of people are terrified of them and 
would want to get the hell out of there because they don't want to live under the table. You you often project you project uh, your feelings or your views on on others, and sometimes are shocked when you see otherwise. You spend some time on those first couple days uh, when tens of thousands of Afghans rush the runways. I think many people will remember those images. Uh, you have in the documentary uh, even more video of what was taking place there. The other the the utter chaos is they're trying to climb onto the planes, the outside of these C-17s, uh, some falling to their death as these planes are taking off. Uh, the Americans having this, uh, having trouble maintaining the perimeter. I was stunned to learn about how things got cleared up with the Afghan military. What did you learn about that? How they were able to finally, and who was able to finally ensure that there was uh, some semblance of, of order uh, after those first few days of chaos? Yeah, I, um, I'm glad you picked that up because actually the first time I heard of that was when we went, the Marines told us, you know, we'd not heard of that. And actually it's not recorded in the the DOD report that we um, that we went through. It's alluded to, um, but what actually happened? So yeah, the there's thousands, tens of thousands of people um, are on the on the airfield stopping the, the airplanes from getting out. So the mission is completely um, compromised at that point. Uh, the, the Marines, the Army, the forces there are completely overrun. And what happens is an Afghan Special Forces unit arrives. Um, and Richard Eller, the, the lead guy, you know, the Marine, he says, great, we've got a host nation force. They speak the language. They can help This is us. the Afghan, uh, just to reiterate, this is the Afghan Special Forces that belong to the previous government. Yeah, so the Afghan National Army. So the previous go- government, they're the ally, our allies. So they were been fighting the Taliban um, with us, on behalf of us. So they, they arrive and they kind of, you know, the way the Marines tell it is they kind of stand back and then these guys basically start shooting people, start running people over. It's night in the, in the airfield. Um, and that, that's what actually quells the airfield. That's what calms, calms it down because people start seeing that if they go onto this airfield, they're going to get run over or shot. So they actually start getting out the way. And the Marines are like, that. we spoke to Marine after Marine. The first Marine that told me this, I was like, that didn't happen, surely. And then another one and another one. And then we go to the West Coast and another one tells us. And then we start. Then I actually I made inroads with Afghan National Army generals and um, other people that were in the Afghan National Army. And I called them about it and said, look, the Marines say that your guys cleared the airfield, but they were doing it by running people over and shooting them. And the general that I spoke to, he said, yeah, that's, that's what happened. Um, and obviously... I hadn't heard that before, and I found it absolutely shocking. But I mean, the Marines were—you can see—I think in the in the film, they're they're in two minds. On one in one mind, they're like, we have to do anything to to achieve our mission, and that is keep the airfield open so we can save these people. On the other hand, they're saying that there's a human rights abuse happen here. There's people being shot and run over on the airfield, and we're watching it happen. But what can we do? The rules of engagement are different for these guys than they are to us. We're meant to be working with them. I think all the, all the rules went out of the window, you know, and then only a day later, they're starting to work with the Taliban. And I think that really starts to um, mess with their heads. Yeah, yeah. They wake up one morning and they're like, we're coordinating with the Taliban now. What's that all about? And I, of course, there were, uh, you know, conversations that happened at the, you know, between Washington and the Taliban um, in those final couple of weeks that you don't even get into in this documentary. I mean, you're really focused um, at this, with the scene at the airport and the human beings that on each side uh, of that scene. Um, to what extent during this process, Jamie, were you like, do we need to go take a, a left turn here uh, in this story to explain that? Or you know, were you really resolute that we're going to just tell the story at the airport? We don't have time to get into the politics and the diplomacy that was taking place at the time. 
Well, for, for my sins, I went, we went to DC. I interviewed the chief negotiator who was there when they were negotiating with Taliban, uh, with the, with the lead at the army in Qatar. Um, so we, we did go around the houses and we interviewed people from the palace, from Ghani's government, the Afghan government, uh, the British ambassador, the, um, Zame Khalilzad, the lead negotiator who, who did the deal with the Taliban. But we kind of realized along the way that you really start unfold the sto- story starts to unspool into you have to know a lot of context a lot of political backgrounds and really that becomes a much different thing and so we wanted we thought actually it's better understood as those people did on the ground you're just you're seeing the information come at you you know the marine is being told something and he's having to do it in the moment like some guy from up high has just said that you're going to work with the taliban now that's all they knew they weren't knowing that there was a guy in a hotel over in doha who was doing a deal with the taliban I think even the people doing the deal with the Taliban didn't really trust that anyway. They, they said themselves, the British and the American ambassador said, well, we did these deals with the Taliban, but we're not going to believe what they say. We'll believe what they do. So we just have to go along and, and, and do this because it's, this, this, this event has run away from us now. Um, but yeah, so the, I think that, that the decision we came to in the, uh, the cutting room, we did we did start the film with this whole first act of giving lots of context and in the middle breaking out to, to where these negotiations were happening. But we realized that actually you want to stay in the, this personal experience of those people that are right there on the gates. You know, that's what you would do if you were watching a movie about this. And this is a documentary, but we're trying to give you the experience of these people. And by just cutting out and going to a whole different country, that seems to not make sense. We wanted to keep the frame as the airport and Kabul and the film never leaves there. And you just stay with the characters that are dealing with that not the people who are meeting or reflecting or analyzing it. So, so we, we, we've learned about what took place that finally brought a, a sense of order, sort of, uh, to the airport for the airlift to actually begin several days in. Did the Marines that you spoke to ever feel like they had a process in place? That there was ever any semblance of, of order, to the extent that one can call it order, there uh for a few of those days i think i mean gunner callan um the one of the marines he he talks about the grind i think they never really necessarily got order i don't think a lot of them slept very much but they got this kind of at least they calmed it down the chaos stopped they had thousands and thousands of people outside i think there was constant threat there's bullets flying around explosions in the distance their snipers were seeing talibs even isis one of the snipers said that he was seeing them over on the hills so I think they're in a constant state of heightened threat uh, for days and days. So it became normalized. And I think they had this grind of suffering on the gates. So there was, I, I don't think there was any time for them to rest or, or really mm. kind of reflect on what was happening. If anything, it just had this kind of period where the, it, the grind kicked in. And then it obviously started, they had to start winding things up. They were getting threat reporting coming in. And then it hits the, the suicide attack that happened. And that completely changed it, things again. Right. So this is the suicide attack of August 26th. This is uh, 13 days into their mission. There's five days left till the August 31st deadline. The um, ISIS bomber, this is a separate group, ISIS, separate from the Taliban. They've had their own rivalry for years. ISIS sends a bomber. 13 Americans um, are killed. At least 170 Afghans are dead in the aftermath of it. I have to tell you, Jamie, as I watch those events unfold, I almost look at it being like, as, as terrible as it sounds, like, 
are we lucky there was only one of these given just the what was playing out there and what could have transpired? But I, I'm curious as to is what you learned uh, about uh, the, the days and hours leading up to that bomb and what happened in the aftermath? Yeah, I, you're, I think the they were getting the, the Marines, the soldiers on the ground were getting intelligence that was it was being repeated. The frequency was high. So they, they say that that's that's a, an indicator that the intelligence is is good. Um, and their intelligence was that they were getting there. It was a suicide bomber, possibly a um, vehicle borne IED. Um, and I think that was one of the things they were most worried about because they can be huge and take out a whole sea of people. Um, so they different different groups of Marines had been on different different units were on different gates. And the three main gates that were operating at that time were the North Gate, the East Gate, the Abbey Gate. And um, as they were getting these threat reports through, some of the senior Marines were they decided to shut down the North Gate and the East Gate, which I think were were by far the most chaotic because they were very difficult to defend. The North Gate was right next to a large road, so you've got vehicle-borne IEDs. The East Gate where you see the baby being passed over that had thousands and thousands of people but by closing those meant everybody was funneled down to the abbey gate lots of people were in the canal there and so that became almost a single focal point um but they the the brits and the americans um the marines were obviously operating the gates i think the, the brits had a slight uh interest as well in keeping that gate open because this was now the only point at which they could get people through and they're desperately trying to get people through up to the deadline and trying to pull people through. But at the same time, there's this huge threat because there's tens of thousands of people out there. Anybody wearing a backpack could detonate. And of course they did. Um, and I suppose seeing that flow of events made sense of why it happened where it did and um, and maybe why some Marine, some people are frustrated by the fact that it played out like that. Maybe, maybe they think there could have been a different response. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that everybody did the best they could obviously but they um that did effectively shut the evacuation i think some people were allowed in after that but very few through kind of minor minor hidden gates um but when uh when that happened you know the gate was shut i think it was absolute chaos afterwards there's 170 no one really knows how many afghans were killed there's obviously 13 u.s servicemen and women um and then mm -hmm then it was kind of time to wrap this thing up. I think that was it where it was, it was like, we, we just need to kind of wrap this up now. We need to get out with as many people alive as possible in an orderly fashion. What made the difference for the Afghans you spoke to? Uh, and I'm curious whether you actually spoke to any Afghans who didn't, who were out there, but didn't quite make it through and are still living in Afghanistan today. Um, what made the difference? Was it sheer luck, Jamie, that uh, led the 120 something thousand to get through? Um, were there certain strategies you know, it occurs to me that several of the Afghans you spoke to who successfully got out appeared to speak English. Was that helpful uh, to some? What What did you learn about who made it and who didn't and, and what made the difference? Yeah, so I suppose there's a few different groups there. There were that one is the um, people who'd worked with any of the NATO forces and some of those in the film or, or in the Afghan government, but at a very high level. I think if you're just below that, many, many are still stuck there. But um, they, but even if you had a paper um, or an email from an embassy, you still had to get to the gate, through the gate. And it was a kind of deadly assault course. So really, it was wits, luck, perseverance, stamina. You know, people are out there for four or five days in the sun in this drainage canal, terrible conditions, trying to get through, trying to go through with their families. So there was a lot of just fighting uh, to get 
through those gates and, and a huge amount of luck. And I think there were a lot of people who, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of people that are still in Afghanistan that would have had as by as much right almost as, as a lot of people that went through those gates. Um, people who'd worked with the Brits, people who'd worked with the Americans, people who had a case to, to leave. I mean, it was complete chaos. You had, you had, there was screening processes. People would be screened for security at the gates, but there was State Department screening after. I know at some points that completely stopped when people were f- flown out I think to secondary countries, then they were screened there. So my, I, we looked into the fact that it was were, were just anybody hauled onto the planes sometimes, but actually when they got on the ground to the to the intermediary companies, uh, countries, then State Department or the British Border Force would then process and, um, and and evaluate people there. So I don't think there was this kind of just open border um, policy happening. Did the Taliban that was standing there, did they just effectively just tolerate the fact that um, these people were getting through? What what led them to let people even near the gates as opposed to just sending everyone home from outside the airport? Well, I think initially in, um, before the kind of deal was struck, it was it was chaos. And I think a lot of people were being stopped and being sent home. And you see that kind of near the start of the film, you know, their orders were stop people. And I think the Taliban are a very unified, organized force as well. So you have some that are maybe bent on revenge, others that try and act like good soldiers who just listen to whoever's giving the commands. So they're quite, uh, they're a disorganized force. Um, but the, I think after, um, when it when it got down later, it, it, the, there was an agreement that was set. It was a political agreement, and, and they do follow the orders of their superiors. And their orders were: if people have got the papers, they can go through the gates, and then they can get to where the Americans and the Brits are. And they can process to go through. So it's still very difficult for people. And some people, if they're recognised as being part of Afghan National Army, being part of the the government, they're obviously fearful that they might get picked out, and there might be retribution towards them. Um, but there was no, there was, it seemed that they did try and put some order in and they basically, uh, there was that deal that was struck. They did stand by, I mean, it was still, it was hairy and it was dangerous and you know, the, their way of holding the gates is, and, and processing people is beating people, shooting up in the air. Bullets were, we interviewed people and it didn't include one in the film, but there was a guy who was shot. I, he didn't even know where the bullet came from. You know, it, it shot him in the neck and he woke up about 20 days later after being in a coma and he'd been on the East gate that, that happened to lots of people. There were just bullets. You can see it in the film. There's bullets flying everywhere. I think from Afghan national army who were on some of the gates who are firing around like this. And then there's the Taliban who are firing just, just almost as crowd control. Did, did you get a chance to talk to any Afghans that were outside the airport, but weren't able to get through and now are still living in Afghanistan and are they facing any ramifications um, or consequences for their attempt to leave by the current Taliban regime? So uh, there's a couple in the film. There's one, um, Beheshta Taib, she's uh, she's still in Afghanistan um, and she tried to leave, but she just got to the gates and it was so full, so dangerous, bullets flying everywhere that she just, she was like, we're, we're gonna lose our lives here. We can't do this. We're gonna, we're gonna go, it's just too terrible. Um, I mean, she, the main, the main issue with her, and there's another guy in the film, Muslim Hotak, who was there when the plane went down, but he actually went, he did go back and tried to get out, but just couldn't. Um, I think both of them, they're not in immediate danger from the Taliban, but they're, the whole country at the moment is in the grip of this economic crisis. And, you know, Beheshta can't 
study. She's a young businesswoman in, in Afghanistan. What was happening in Kabul was that young women would um, work in the day and then they'd go to university or college at night. That's how they would, they would, um, they would get educated. And um, she can't do that now because you're not allowed to leave home at night. If you do, you have to have a mahram, which is a, a male companion from your family if you're going a short dist- over a short distance. Um, so it stops you from, she can't go to university. Her work's broken down because of the economic situation. Uh, you know, the Taliban are controlling women a lot. So her life and the dreams she had for her life have completely changed. You know, she was a very modern woman who was, would have been, I've got no doubt, very successful internationally in business, but now she can't even leave the country. Um, and her education has been stalled. You know, she doesn't know where the country's going because it's completely economically flatlined. It's fallen into freefall. There's no contractors there anymore. The banks don't work. The currency doesn't work. You know, it's it's a it's a country on its knees. Um, I think 60% of the country is starving. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I did also meet a lot of people who are under threat, who are in hiding, especially people who worked for the government um, on a lot of layers. Um, people who were working in local councils, anybody that worked with the Americans or the British. So there's a guy I know, he worked, he worked as a contractor ship with trucks that were going in and out of Bagram. Not anything combat-wise, but, you know, he was terrified. he's terrified that if the Taliban find out where he is and that he was working with the Americans, then he's going to get disappear or he's going to get into serious trouble. Same with his family. And th- those stories are, are countless. And there's, there's lots of people that are in hiding. Do we have a sense of, of how many people who should have been able to get out based on the um, uh, promises made by the U.S. and other Western countries uh, who had worked with Western militaries um, are still there in Afghanistan? And is there any sort of effort still uh, happening between the West and the Taliban to get those people out of the country? I mean, out, outwardly, in terms of numbers, I don't think there's really a, I don't think anybody knows. I mean... A, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, I met a lot, and really, there's there's no fourth estate in Afghanistan now. Really, there's some great journalists working there, but there's not. You can't work as a journalist. You can't move around as you normally would. Um, so it's very difficult to kind of get accurate information. Um, but you know, me being there for two months, I met a hell of a lot of people who had worked with the British military, the British government, the Americans. Um, by rights, they should be able to get out. They can't. You know, they call the people they were meant to be able to call. No, the phone doesn't pick up. You know. We saw the British Foreign Office when this was happening. A lot of them were away on holiday. Um, there's people that were promised that there would be help to get out. Um, they've, they say they email, they call, the numbers they're given, no one ever picks up. They apply for the uh, visas online. They never, they, never get, they never get anything back. You know, this is a story you just hear again and again and again. And we hear from various governments that, yeah, the people are meant to be helped if they have the right, um, if their, if their right conditions are met. But it seems few and far between. I mean, I think there are some people that are getting out, but a hell of a lot are trying to go through Pakistan or trying to get out through other ways. But really, they just end up having a lot of their money taken off them and they end up back in Afghanistan in the same situation. So you've approached this uh, as a a filmmaker. Uh, You come away with uh, both what you showed in the film and all the interviews you did that you weren't able to get into the film. What are the major questions that um, the American people, the British people, um, Westerners should be asking their governments? Um, And where do you think uh, we need to be poking around more uh, when it comes to what transpired last summer 
and what it says about the the larger 20-year war that uh, we conducted there. Yeah, I, th- I think more immediately in terms of what happened last summer, there does need to be a root and branch inquiry. And I think it's important for people to go to Afghanistan to do that. I actually spoke with some people at uh, a think tank who were working with a think tank in D.C. And, you know, they were saying they already seem to have all their conclusions. And I'm like, how can you pull these conclusions? You're just reading this from great newspapers like the New York Times and things. But these are kind of uh, complex questions that you're asking. You should maybe go to Afghanistan and understand how the country works and how these things how they really work when you're when you're standing there on the ground. Um, so um, I think that there does need to be a lot of soul searching about how this ended and about the 20 year war. I mean, because it does have an effect on maybe how we approach places like Ukraine, Russia, Taiwan, China. Um, you know, these things aren't they don't happen in uh, exclusively. There is a there is a connection uh, about how we act and then how other other countries act with us. Um, I think in terms of taking this forward, um, you know, we, we spent trillions in Afghanistan. A lot of U.S. military were killed, a lot of British, tens of thousands of Afghans, um, hundreds of thousands of Afghans. You know, I think it would be important mm-hmm. for us not to forget Afghanistan and work out what, what is going to happen next with it. You know, already we're seeing uh, links with Pakistan, with Russia, with China in Afghanistan. There were stories that the Chinese government or a Chinese company wanted to take over the Bagram Air Base because it's one of the biggest in the region. Um, U.S. left a hell of a lot of hardware there. A lot of it smashed up, but there's there's a legacy that we uh, we collectively have. And I think that I I don't think I think I don't think anybody would think that we should just walk away from that because there will be um, uh, there will be a price to pay. You know, 9-11 was the start of the Afghan conflict. The end was what we saw last year. Al-Qaeda's leader was droned by an American drone just, I think, last month. Um, you know, in the deal that... that yeah, the li- li- living, in, uh, living in a defense, a Taliban defense ministry home. He was, he was living down the end of the street where I was living. I could see his house. I mean, if he was coming out on that balcony at 6 a.m. every morning, he was being seen by everybody around the area because Kabul's not like New York where you can't really see. You go out onto the balcony and you can see all around because it's quite a low city. Just just for the record though, Jamie, just for the record, you didn't know that you you didn't spot Zawahiri yourself while you were there. No, not of course, of course. I mean, what what you do know is the fact that the the green zone that was is where the US embassy and all the embassies and the the dignitaries were living. Now it's it's full of the, the the top level Taliban. So you have the Haqqanis all live there. Um, so you, and, and there's no oversight. You don't really know who's there. I mean, all you do know is that like, if you drained this place, what, you know, you'd find some interesting characters around because it just seemed like weird stuff. You know, it's, it, it, this place is going unchecked now. There's no, there's no uh, US, no British um, uh, influence, but also kind of people around to see what's happening. Like, I remember I was in one, one guy's uh, office and they were just giving out wads of money like this, like cash out of a, a Taliban, like a Taliban commander who was just giving these huge wads of cash to his men. And I'm like, you know, corruption's going on there, but you're kind of, what, what is, there's all, all these different things that happen that you've got no idea. So it kind of didn't surprise me that when that drone attack happened. Um, but what surely that does signify is that the deal that was struck between the Taliban and when the Americans signed it, you know, part of the deal was that uh, no terrorist attack would, would be allowed to be launched from Afghan soil and Al-Qaeda were a prescribed organization there. Obviously, Haqqani himself, one of the top guys in the Taliban government's house, was where um, the Al-Qaeda leader was droned. So, you know, the deal already seems to be kind of 
null and void if you look at it that way. You you make very apparent in the film uh, that the rhetoric you heard from some Taliban officials, especially in the days uh, and weeks following uh, their takeover, uh, the actions that we've seen transpire, especially in 2022, uh, are very much the opposite of some of the things that they promised. In, in what way? Uh, in regards to the treatment of women, in regards to the treatment of, uh, you know, saying to uh, the, the people who formerly worked with uh, Westerners that, you know, uh, you know uh, everything is okay. We're all friends now. Don't, don't worry about us. We're not going to take our revenge on you. But in particular, when it comes to women's rights and women's education and women's employment. And I, and I think uh, for a lot of the Talibs, you know, there is a schism. There is a d- division within the Taliban. There's the old hardliners who have control and there's the kind of Taliban 2.0 who may, maybe like the idea of their girls going, their daughters going to, uh, to universities, but they get, they get kind of pulled back with the, with the older hardliners. Um, I suppose, and you make a good point, they, they do in the, in the film, um, you know, the Taliban spokesman comes out and he says, everything's going to be fine, you're going to be safe, go back home. And I think that he does believe, they do believe some of that, but their prism of what human rights were and women's rights are very different to us. You know, the women's rights for them is like, they'll keep them safe, like a safe in the house, uh, away from danger. And it's not <laughs> they, they have a right to literally stay alive. That's women's rights. Exactly. So they're, they're, they, they say, well, we give women brilliant rights. We will protect them. We will clothe them. We will feed them. Their, their idea of women's rights does not reflect what ours would be. So I think that they're kind of, um, their complete outlook on life and human rights is so completely different to us. So when they're talking about that, they're talking about almost a different thing. I, I want to end here with this. You, you spent a lot of time, uh, you've gone through, uh, hundreds, probably thousands of hours of footage here, Jamie. What what was the most surprising thing? Um, I'll conclude here that you learned um, something you didn't expect, or the the way the the story took you um, as you uh, put together this film. I think um, so. There was two things. One is the suicide commander who is in the film. It took a a long time to meet him. I didn't think he would be. I didn't even know he'd turn up. I didn't know what he'd be. Some people said he'd be worth meeting, but we've been tra- tracing this guy for a long time. But when he arrived, he was just a, he's a crazy character. You see it in the film. He's like it, kind of quite an amazing storyteller, but he's also been a, you know, he sent recruiters and sent men to their deaths to kill themselves. That's what his job was. He's extremely successful at it. He'd been involved in several attacks on hotels with, I think, Western journalists. Um, he'd actually had a front, um, a, a car sales room as a front in Kabul where he'd been making car bombs. And there were literally, you know, he talks about putting bombs up his rectum. Him and his men would take the bombs apart, yeah. put them up their asses and then drive through checkpoints to get them through and then put them back together and then commit attacks. And he was obviously, he was proud that he was the, the leader of the suicide com- unit, but it seems like a kind of nominative, to, <laughs> it, it seems like a ridiculous concept, surely by going, being, um, uh, going up in an organization like that, you're going to kind of, kind of rub yourself out of existence by blowing yourself up yourself. But he seemed to not do that and just be happy to to send people to their deaths. And the fact that his his men, um, those suicide bombers, are the people that uh, formed a ring around the airport, around the the soldiers that were there. It seemed that was a kind of terrifying 
situation i think and that was that was the charge that was put under the whole thing but i think he he was uh he was just a mind-boggling character i mean we don't i don't know you know the british military the the u.s military we don't have suicide bombers it's a psychology that's completely alien to us to so kind of sit down with someone like that and, and try and understand their experience was uh, it was quite fascinating but it's quite terrifying character a brilliant storyteller i think in a way um and i think the other one was uh there was a u.s serviceman who was wearing a body cam that i'd found very early on it took about five months to get hold of the footage but then when i did um and he managed to let me have a look at it there was about i suppose eight ten hours of material there and we didn't use of course all of that in the film but it really helped to understand the run of events and that was what we really wanted to make sure we got right because if you can understand that chronology then we can start shaping the story and make sure we verify everything um because event like this in afghanistan you know in the world right now fake news is a big problem and in afghanistan no more so in places like afghanistan where the there isn't press oversight their journalism isn't free and open and it's not abundant um and so that um that footage became was really unlocked i think the story and managed to illustrate the intensity of what was happening like you actually see the gates come open thousands of people rush through and the marines are just trying their best to to help these people and you know the marines thought they were going to go in there to fight the taliban and they they it was a completely different situation you really immerse us um in this film and what took place there and and help us see it through uh the eyes of of the people who were desperate to get out the marines who were trying to manage a chaotic situation and the Taliban that were shocked by their victory and, you know, trying to manage things from their end. Um, Jamie Roberts, I appreciate your perspective here. Um, recommend everyone uh, go see Escape from Kabul. You can catch it on HBO Max here in the U.S. Uh, Jamie, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank Jamie Roberts again for joining me. You can catch his new documentary, Escape from Kabul, on HBO Max. Email me your thoughts on this podcast over at podcast at mo.news with topics and people you'd like me to speak with in the future. Also, a reminder to subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bolton.com. Follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on so you don't miss a single episode. And leave us a review. It helps us continue to grow the show. And every review matters and really helps. I'll see everyone back here soon.